ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I'm in a good mood today. I finally got like two days of good night's sleep after working incredibly long days, but well worth it. I'm back on a regular schedule of 10-hour days, including today, so I feel good about that. I'm actually rested for the first time in quite some time. I'm not the only person having a good week. Jay-Z is having an amazing week. Mobile payments company Square, who I use when I do book signings in person. I use my little Square card reader to accept credit card payments. Square announced that it had finalized a deal to purchase a majority stake of Tidal, the music streaming service run by billionaire rapper Sean Jay-Z Carter. I'm a little sad that Tidal will no longer be Black-owned. I don't know that I'm going to stick with Tidal. I got it years ago. I want to say Kanye's, was it my Dark Twisted Fantasy? It was first available on Tidal. So I got one of those either 7-day or 30-day free trials. And I just kept it because I was like, well, if I'm going to do a streaming service, I want to support Black people. So I've kept it all of this time. And I actually like it. But I think Apple has, um, Apple has Shazam and I love Shazam, but like the way it is now, I Shazam something, find out what it is, and then go over to title to put it on a playlist as opposed to if I was with Apple, it would be a lot simpler. So it was an extra step I was making to support black business. But if this ain't no longer a black business and Jay-Z got his check, I might go somewhere else. Is Apple the best streaming service? Where do you, where do you stream your music from? Let me know in the comments of one of the social media posts about this episode or send me a DM and let me know what's your preferred streaming streaming app. <laughs> but the reason this was so great for Jay-Z is in 2015, so six around six years ago, he purchased Tidal for $56 million. That means he sold it for what? Like quick math in my head. So he sold a little more than half of the company. For 5.5 times what he paid for the whole thing. That's a good investment. And this is just two weeks after Jay-Z announced that he'd sold. I don't know how to pronounce the French name of it. Ace of Spades. But after he sold Ace of Spades to the wine and sports division of LVMH. Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. Forbes valued that deal. Which was 50% ownership. Forbes said that deal was worth $630 million. Look, are the Carters adopting? Like, I'm not wanting for anything, but I'd like to live this life too. Blue and the others, because we don't never see them. She'd be hiding them kids. Every once in a while, she'd let them come out. But I feel like we saw Blue a lot more. She don't play with these younger ones. Can they take a fourth? I'm older than Beyonce, allegedly. Maybe. I can babysit for a couple hours. Then I get tired. Kids will wear you out. I blew bubbles once for like two hours straight for my friend's daughter, my little niece. She's the cutest little thing. But her favorite thing is like blow bubbles. Her parents buy her all these toys. Like a 50 cent bottle of bubbles is what brings her the most joy. But I guess that's kids. Like you buy gifts for Christmas. They'd rather play with the box and the stuffing for the box than the actual gift. Kids. But can I be one of the Carter's kids? Or the nanny? Something. Just off Jay-Z's check alone. Jesus. But congratulations to Mr. Carter. 
I know some folks will be mad at the capitalism of it all. That's a conversation worth having. I'm just not having it. Oh, last week, I talked about folks at the Golden Globes, and I left off two important wins. Soul got a win, and I didn't even put it in my notes. I don't remember what it was for, but Soul got a win, which means Jamie Foxx got a win, and congratulations to Jamie Foxx. Tiffany Haddish, to my knowledge, was not nominated for anything. I just saw pictures on Instagram of her all dressed up. I just want to acknowledge she looked fucking amazing. Now, I've been hard on Tiffany Haddish sometimes because her, her early start, she was, she was a little wild. That hopping over the velvet rope to run up on Meryl Streep, the old white lady who didn't give two shits about her. I was like, ma'am, you are a star. You are in a hit film. You are a celebrity. Bring it down to a 10. Act like you're supposed to be there and not as a fan. But Tiffany was excited. She did what she did. She got side-eyed how she did. So maybe she learned a lesson. But I've been hard on Tiffany. So when Tiffany does great, I also want to acknowledge Tiffany's greatness. Ma'am looks phenomenal. During quarantine, I think she said she lost 50 pounds, which I didn't think she had 50 pounds to lose. She didn't strike me as a woman who was out of shape, but she lost this 50 pounds. She cut all her hair off. Now, I too have cut all my hair off and, and the initial cut probably wasn't the most flattering. Like I've gone damn near bald before, which I loved, but still wasn't the most flattering for the shape of my face. My father said something to me and he was like, look, we got the same shape face. You need some more hair. The low, low, low doesn't work for us. Grow some hair. I was like, oh, but he was right. But Tiffany grew a little hair. She got some bleach up in it. She lightened it. Not too, too blonde. I'm like a medium blonde, a nice blonde, a flattering, a flattering blonde, like a golden blonde, maybe. But she looks great. And I just want to say that she looks great. I like to acknowledge when people do good things. She's made a transformation. Good for her. Also, cleaning up from last week, we were talking about the new host of The Bachelor, or at least the guy that's replacing Chris to talk to The Bachelor and the woman he chose in like the final episode of the season. So kind of like the after show, Emmanuel Aku. I was like, I don't know this man. I have not seen this man. Peace and blessings to this man who I do not know. And a couple people hit me and was like, you know him. You know him. He's Yvonne Orgy's ex-boyfriend. And I was like, really? Because his face didn't even look familiar to me. Like I knew him when he was with Yvonne. When they parted ways, peacefully and respectfully, he never heard any drama about that situation, just that it had ended, which is how it's supposed to be. Everybody ain't got to be mad and angry about a breakup, but they went their separate ways and that's fine. But I totally did. I didn't remember him. I had to go look up the pictures to be like, is that him? It is. It is. He's a very nice looking man, but he is the guy who's hosting The Bachelor. Because I was like, where did this man come from? I was really confused. I was like, you got a whole show with like 80 million downloads and I've never even heard your name? I'm not saying that I know everything, but at the point where you're like an Oprah's best pick and you've got 80 million downloads, like that's just weird. That I cover pop culture and you're black and you're attractive and I've never heard of you? So that's who he is. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I see how we ended up here. Good for him. I'm still, are we keeping it 100? I'm going to get in trouble for this and I'm going to say it anyway. I don't want to sound like the Eidos contingent because I think that they have good intent. I think their execution just reads as as xenophobic. So I want to choose my words very carefully so as not to 
to sound xenophobic. Essentially, I have some trepidation about a Nigerian American man leading the conversation on race in America. That's not to say that his perspective is not valid. That's not to say that his perspective doesn't need and deserve to be heard, even amplified. It is to say that I do wonder if he will, as a Nigerian American, capture the nuances of the African-American experience with race and racism in America. There are some very popular Nigerian-American, trying to choose my words, public figures who speak about race. And I don't want to just limit that to Nigerian-American because it's come up with some other people who have British roots with African roots as well. And people from other countries in Africa. It's, I don't want to single out Nigeria here. But sometimes when non-American black folks speak about the social construct and history of race and racism in America, they tend to miss the nuances. And that doesn't apply to everyone. This gentleman, I'm not familiar with his work. I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt. I said last week, like, I love Rachel Lindsay. I think she's a black girl who gets it. And she gave him a cosign already. Being picked as an Oprah select, that's based on a lot of factors. So I can't determine anything from that. 80 million downloads is dope. I don't know if it's black people doing the downloading, but I just, I just hope he gets it. And I say what I say, because again, There are some very public popular figures who were raised. There are some very public popular figures with African and British roots who were raised in the States and they don't always get it. I hope that he is someone who gets it and he don't say no crazy shit on this upcoming episode of The Bachelor. I think I said that right. Let's hope. If I get cursed out, it won't be the first time. Surely won't be the last. Oh, I have my notes out of order. Do we want to talk about white folks acting a fool right now? No, let's group together white folks acting a fool. Let's save that one. But we do need to talk about this. Texas and Mississippi are 100% open for business. The Texas governor, I haven't bothered to learn his name because I don't really care what it is. I just know the man's a goddamn fool. He announced that Texas was open for business, 100%. Go into the restaurants, go into the theaters, gather, do whatever the fuck you want to do because it's Texas. I, 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 I don't even understand the logic of this. It's not like we get sick of dealing with COVID and then COVID's like, all right, well, I'll go home then. Now, I'm trying to understand the logic of him making this decision. Like, why now? Why today? Like, because it's been a year and it's annoying to like wear these masks. Oh, that's the other part. He was like, y'all only got to wear masks. Do what you want to do. Be free. It's Texas. Huh? I was like, um, did y'all add some extra ICUs? Did y'all put up the field hospitals already? Y'all got ventilators? They don't have vaccines. Something like only 6% of Texans have been vaccinated. I'm like, what are you doing? What doctor approved this? Did a doctor approve this? I think no sane doctor would. I just, like y'all about to die. Texas, Mississippi, essentially the same thing. Y'all about to die, y'all. I don't know why he's doing it. Because you want to be reelected? 
By who? Everybody gonna be dead. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I just know y'all about to die. Like, there's no way it doesn't surge. Every single time this happens, like people open up and then everyone's sick. At least wait until a decent number of people are vaccinated. 6% ain't gonna get it, bruh. I just baffled. Baffled. In TV news, good things are occurring. I watched Snowfall last night. I'm not going to give spoilers. Because I know it just came on. I know folks got things to do. They can't always watch episodes when they first come out. It was a good episode though. This season so far, we're only on episode three. But this season so far has, at one point, Snowfall was a slow build. And now it's just like going crazy. Last night, I was terrified for one of the characters. I was like, oh my God. And then Franklin, he's gone full Michael Corleone. He just don't give a fuck. He has no feelings. Maybe about family. But nothing else. You know, randomly, he's like one of my favorite people on the show. The white CIA dude. He just be so stressed out all the damn time. But they make a point with the show to give Teddy and Franklin similar dispositions, similar stories, similar storylines. In various ways, they're kind of the same person doing the same thing. It's just one of them is sanctioned by the government and the other one is considered a threat to the government despite the government supplying him with the product that makes him so threatening, which I think is one of the whole points of the show. I mean, other than showing how like crack entered all these black neighborhoods, but it's also to show like the government chooses what they consider good or evil and what causes they consider worth fighting for or turning a blind eye to. It's all circumstantial to serve not the greater good, but to line the interests of wealthy white people. But Teddy and Franklin always seem to be stressed out the same way at the same time. And there's a really good scene from, I guess it's season three, where Teddy calls Franklin to the coffee shop and Franklin's like, I'm stressed. And Teddy was like, I can relate. And Franklin's like, no, you have no idea. And Teddy was like, oh no, like you're doing shit that you're not sure is moral. Everyone's relying on you. You're not sure if you can deliver. You're constantly looking over your shoulder. You're worried all the time. You're scaling at a rate that you can't quite process. Like that type of stress. It's like, oh, the same damn person. It's a really good show. So if you haven't seen the latest episode, go watch the latest episode. I wish I could give you a review of Coming to America. It comes out on Amazon Prime tomorrow. But nobody sent me a screener. I usually get screeners for the big shows. I know there was a virtual screening last night. I saw a bunch of people posting, but I was not invited. So I can't review Coming to America. And none of the people that were posting it reviewed it either. So I don't know if it's good, if it's bad. I did like the trailer. Coming to America, to me, like I think most black people, is one of my favorite films. I don't know that it's my favorite Eddie Murphy film. I think that's Harlem Nights. But Coming to America is a close second for me. I thought the trailer was hysterical. Eddie Murphy's humor is very inappropriate. It's very shit you probably shouldn't say. The way people used to make jokes in the 90s, but were too PC to make now without making a lot of noise. But he has that humor. And as someone who came up in the 90s, I prefer it. When they went to the barbershop and they were making all those jokes about Africa, which were... Completely inappropriate, politically incorrect, and probably never should have been said. It was wrong. I laughed my ass off about that shit. 
The shit was fucking hysterical. Sorry. You want me to be honest? You want me to be PC? Because that shit's dry. What else is coming on TV? Oh, there's a new Tina Turner documentary. It premiered at the Berlin Film Festival earlier this week. It's getting rave reviews. It's an in-depth look at Tina Turner, and she participates in the documentary. So that should be really great. I do love Tina Turner. I love her story even more. You can guess why that narrative resonates with me. The big debut this week, other than coming to America, is Oprah. Sunday night on CBS, she has an interview with Duchess Meghan and Prince Harry. It is the couple's first in-depth tell-all interview since stepping down from royal family duties. In this special, this is according to the press release, Oprah speaks with the Duchess of Sussex. Jesus Christ, I had to do four takes of that with these braces. In a wide-ranging interview covering everything from stepping into life as a royal, marriage, motherhood, and philanthropic work, to how she is handling life under intense public pressure. Allegedly, this is a no-holds-barred interview. The palace is none too happy about it, as well as some prominent Britons. She is facing criticism that she's doing this special with Oprah as Prince Philip, the Queen's husband. He is 99 years old. He is in a London hospital recovering from a heart operation. Now, he's supposed to live, but still, family is in the hospital, and she's doing what some speculate may be an explosive and damaging, quote and unquote, interview. Yeah. Megan is facing her own set of strife before the interview airs. She's been accused of bullying while she was living in the palace. Two palace aides said that she bullied them. The palace said that they will conduct an official investigation regarding the recent reports of bullying. Look, I don't believe in bullying. I think bullying is awful. I've been bullied. Some might say I bully. I don't think so. Not since like junior high or high school, but as an adult, never. If the worst thing that you can say about somebody is they bullied two aides, you really ain't got no tea. This is not tea. She bullied people. If she did, it's unfortunate. She shouldn't have done that. Bad Megan. This is all the tea you got? Ahead of this Oprah interview, was she about to let y'all have it with the truth? Take your licks in peace, please. This is embarrassing. She's going to tell whatever she's going to tell in this Oprah interview. And your only comeback is she, she bullied two people when she was living with us. Y'all going to talk about how y'all bullied her? Because that did happen. Y'all going to talk about how the press bullied her? Because that did happen. We know for a fact that happened. We saw that happen. Stop it. But Megan has addressed the latest investigation. She believes, like many, that this was strategically time to drop ahead of the interview, that they're trying to discredit her before this Oprah interview airs. And the New York Times discussing these latest allegations, they acknowledged as much. They referred to sources, quote and unquote, who believe the public should have insight into the AIDS side of the story before watching the couple's much-publicized interview with Winfrey due to be televised in the United States on Sunday. Nah. But Megan did respond. She said, or her, or her spokesperson did, this was a statement obtained by People Magazine. The Duchess is saddened by the latest attack on her character, particularly as someone who has been the target of bullying herself 
and is deeply committed to supporting those who have experienced pain and trauma. She is determined to continue her work, building compassion around the world, and will keep striving to set an example for doing what is right and doing what is good. Hmm. I can't wait to watch this interview. The clips circulating look very interesting. There's a clip where Oprah says to Megan, you've said some pretty shocking things here. You know, it takes a lot to shock Oprah. She's interviewed everybody and their mother for like 40 years. What has Oprah not heard thus far that she found shocking? I think one of the questions Oprah asked her is why does she speak out about her, her, her life as a royal and against the palace? I don't know how they could expect that after all this time, we would still just be silent if there's an active role that the firm is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. And if that comes, speaking out, with the risk of losing things, I mean, there's a lot that's been lost already. True. There's a couple things that, that strike me about this, um, this latest round of, of muck and allegations that are coming from the palace. Megan is, one, visibly pregnant. Really? Your strategy is to attack a pregnant lady? Who, for at least part of the interview, was sitting there holding her belly. So, like, in case you didn't realize she was very pregnant. She has on a loose dress. But in case you didn't realize it, she's very pregnant. And y'all think that's okay? Also, you're attacking the wife of the man whose mother was killed largely because the palace hated her and didn't protect her and allowed all the crazy media stuff to happen around her and to her. They didn't protect that woman. They didn't protect Diana. And she ended up dead. Now her son went and got this wife. Y'all were participating in the tearing down of this wife. Y'all were fueling these stories to the press, allegedly. He didn't want what happened to his mother to happen to his wife. He packed up his shit and left the country. Left his family. Lost most of his titles. And it's worth it to him. Because he's sick of y'all crazy. And he ain't trying to lose his wife like he lost his mom. And y'all are cool publicly coming for him? It's a PR strategy. Not going to end well for y'all. Attacking the pregnant lady and the guy who grew up without his mom that everybody thinks y'all had a role in killing. Not a good strategy. Like maybe that ish will fly in the UK. Maybe folks there are loyal subjects. But here in America... I know a lot of folks don't like Megan. The racism here is, is about the same as the UK. It manifests differently. But racism is racism is racism. But I think a pregnant woman talking about how bad y'all did her and her husband talking about how bad it was that he left the whole damn country. Oh, and they killed my mom. I don't think that's going to go over very well. We'll see. We'll talk about it next week. But I think the palace is going to regret coming for Meghan and Harry this way, this time. Because I also think, too, I don't know how savvy Meghan is, and I think she is pretty savvy, but if she can bring up any allusions to Diana in this interview, and folks start comparing this interview to that infamous interview that Diana did with, I think it was Martin Brashear. I think that's how he became famous. But if you grew up on, like, the royal stuff, or you just got into it older, there was this really infamous interview where Martin Brashear interviewed Diana and she talked about there are three of us in this marriage. And she talked about how she was married to Charles, but he was all up Camilla's ass. 
And so she said, this marriage is very crowded. It's the infamous quote from that interview. And it was a very damning interview. She talked about her business. She talked about the shenanigans that she'd been on. But she was like, I mean, what do you want me to do? They crazy over here. And it went over surprisingly well. I would guess that Megan will channel a bit of Diana in this interview. If she's smart. We'll see. We shall see. Oh, one more thing about these two. People keep talking about how public they are. And they find it hypocritical that they left the UK because they wanted more privacy. And then they come over here and they do, you know, Oprah interviews and Disney and Netflix and and things like that. And I would suggest to you that it's very different to be public on your own terms as opposed to being hunted and maligned constantly in the press every damn day. When we hear about Meghan and Harry here, we hear about them because they're doing something and they make an announcement. But there's not paparazzi hounding them here the way it was occurring in the UK. There's a difference. Doing something on your own terms and courting publicity for the things that you want to court it for, and then there's press around that, good, bad, or indifferent, that's fine. But as opposed to people just coming for you daily, because that's what her life was like, but daily, making up shit, saying crazy shit, personal attacks, personal attacks to you and your kid. They called that woman's baby a monkey. Y'all remember that? Was it a monkey or an ape? Same difference. Here, you might see some crazy shit like that on like, some random meme, some Neanderthal on the internet, but you're not going to see it on, say, like, even the cover of, like, The Inquirer. You're not going to see that in your checkout line. Like, they have limits. They'll call you fat. They'll call you gay, but they're not going to call your baby a monkey. Jesus. They might suggest you're having an inappropriate relationship with a monkey, but they wouldn't call your baby one. There's limits. There's limits. For some people, let's talk about white men going wild now. Two white men have gone wild. I'm going to start with the one that you think I'm not talking about. Let's look up his name. He's a former White House doctor. You'll know his quotables before you know his name, though. He infamously did a press conference where he talked about how healthy Donald Trump was and how he'd lived to be 200 or some nonsense like that. The doctor's name is Ronnie Jackson. He's the White House's former top physician for both Obama and Trump, and he is now a member of Congress. There was a 37-page report done about him from the Pentagon's Inspector General. This report describes Ronnie as a wild man. I'm reading this on Politico. I like to cite my sources. So folks don't think I'm trolling down in the gossip blogs. No, this is Politico. This is a reputable publication. And this report comes from the Pentagon. They are mostly considered reputable, according to the reports, on a presidential trip to the Philippines. Quote, Jackson made sexual and denigrating statements about one of his female medical subordinates to another of his subordinates. Specifically, he said that his female subordinate had great tits and a nice ass, and he would like to see more of her tattoos. On the same trip, he went out and got fucked up. And then he came back to the hotel intoxicated 
in the middle of the night and he began pounding on this woman's hotel room door, screaming, yelling, and overall loud behavior. That's terrifying. That poor woman. This isn't the good story. There was another one that talked about how he used to black out on people. We're back to the New York Times. The New York Times has not been letting us down. The Times says he was yelling and pounding on that female subordinate's hotel room door between 1 and 2 a.m. while visibly intoxicated. I knew that was some after midnight shenanigans. Mama says ain't nothing open after 11 except... (laughs) Witnesses said he created so much noise they worried it would wake Mr. Obama. The woman in the room... She said you could smell the alcohol on his breath. Ma'am, did you open the door? I guess she did. He had kind of bloodshot eyes. You could smell the alcohol on his breath. And he leaned into my room and he said, I need you. I felt really uncomfortable. When a drunk man comes to your room and they say, I need you, your mind goes to the worst. The report painted a picture of a physician who engaged in reckless and sometimes threatening behavior that created a toxic environment for his subordinates. Nearly all of the 60 witnesses, that means he did this shit, 60 witnesses interviewed by investigators described Dr. Jackson's screaming, cursing behavior and his yelling, screeching, rage, tantrums, and meltdowns when dealing with subordinates. One person is quoted anonymously in the report. He says of Dr. Jackson, he would rage all the time. Screeching red in the face, bug-eyed, sweating, ears red, jaw clenched. I mean, I'm talking rage. And I'm a clinician. I'm a board-certified physician. Rage. They describe an incident in Martha's Vineyard where he cursed at subordinates for failing to purchase a specific type of bug spray. How the fuck did this man still have a job? This is crazy. Former White House officials... From the Obama administration, they declined to comment on the report about Dr. Jackson's behavior on the record. There were also some White House folks. I don't know if these were officials or just people who were there and saw things. There's no description of their duties. They said Dr. Jackson was known as Candyman and Dr. Feelgood because he would dispense sleeping pills, muscle relaxants, and other drugs with ease. Do you remember when Michelle Obama was on book tour and she was like, hey, I got some news for y'all. I have been around all the people that are supposed to be the most intelligent and high ranking and supposed to like know it all and have like these big ideas. And she was like, they don't know shit. That's not actually what she said. She said they don't know what you think they do. And she was like, they scamming you. They scamming you. She was in all these important rooms with all these really smart people. And was like, some of these people ain't that smart at all. Sir is out here going into full rage, getting fucked up on work trips, and banging on a woman's door in the middle of the night, handing out pills like they're candy. Not only kept his job, ran for Congress and won. This report came out while he's a sitting member of Congress. So far, I've not heard any cause for his resignation. I think the report just came out yesterday, though. We'll be following that story. In other stories we've been following, 
We've been following this Cuomo sexual harassment story. The nursing home story where so many grannies and grandpas died, that's been pushed to the background. Folks are far more interested in Cuomo and this sexual harassment story. He did a press conference yesterday. I was waiting for it to come up on CNN and they went to commercial. And by the time they came back, he was wrapping up his statement and his voice was cracking. And I was like, did Cuomo cry? This is the first time, I think since the second and third woman came out, that he's spoken about the allegations. And in short, he said, quote, I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable. It was unintentional, and I truly and deeply apologize for it. I feel awful about it. Frankly, I'm embarrassed by it, and that's not easy to say, but it's the truth. He added that he'd never touched anyone inappropriately. So maybe some comments, but no touching. He didn't cross that line. And he said again, I never knew at the time that I was making anyone feel uncomfortable. And I certainly never meant to offend anyone or hurt anyone or cause anyone any pain. That is the last thing I would ever want to do. You tell me this happened in 2000. You tell me it happened in 2010, 2015, because the culture has actually changed rapidly in the last five to six years. But all of these allegations take place, I want to say, within the last two, two and a half years. All of this shit takes place during the height of Me Too. So Me Too is the conversation in every reading person's space. And somehow it just missed you. Like the height of Me Too You thought it was appropriate for your 63-year-old ass to be asking like a 23-year-old if she'd ever had sex with an older man or suggest that she get a tattoo on her ass or grab some girl's face at a wedding and kiss her? You thought that was okay? Like at the time you were doing all of this, Biden was in hot water for rubbing people's heads or doing that nose Eskimo kiss thing. But you thought this shit was cool? You didn't know? I appreciate that he apologized. I appreciate that he said he was embarrassed, but this also strikes me as very fall on the sword behavior because once folks say, I'm sorry, then it's harder to go after them. Like, well, he apologized. What else do you want him to say? He's not resigning. There's going to be an investigation. I think even if there is an investigation and it comes out, they're like, no, he did that shit, which I think with the receipts the women provided, I mean, one of them has pictures of him grabbing her face. We talked about that. It's a cover of the New York Post earlier this week. I don't think most thinking people really question whether the women are telling the truth or not. It just boils down to a really uncomfortable conversation about what should be done about it, if anything. Because it's like two things. Pomo's going to step down over this. Meanwhile, the governor of Virginia, and we talked about this when it happened a year and some change ago. I, I, I hadn't been doing the podcast that long. The governor of Virginia got caught in a blackface scandal And he refused to step down. The lieutenant governor was accused of rape. He refused to step down. And whoever the number three in charge is, I forget what that title is, but he came out and was like, just before y'all go look, I had a blackface scandal too. All three of them refused to step down. They stayed in office. And after a while, the press just moved on to another story. So there's that precedent. There's also the Trump precedent, which when I have these very intense conversations with my my Politico friends who are mostly coastal elites, they're just like, so you want Cuomo to step down over grabbing a woman's face or asking inappropriate questions 
or mentioning Bill Clinton's cigars with Monica Lewinsky. You want him to step down over that. Meanwhile, Donald Trump can talk about grabbing women by the pussy. He can have multiple rape charges against him and he gets to stay in office. Fuck no, Cuomo can't leave. And he shouldn't be asked to. If Trump can stay in office, despite being a known pig, despite enthusiastically talking about sexual assault, how possibly can you expect Cuomo to step down? That makes no sense. I kind of get it. They also point out that Democrats love to eat their own. And they were like, yo, this is why we cannot get ahead as a political party, because Democrats want to sit on this moral high horse and they'll get rid of people who are really good people who make poor decisions versus the Republicans. They'll be like, yeah, we know we said to Obama that it was an election year. And although it was January or February, like your, your Supreme court person died. Sorry to you, that man, you can't have a Supreme court pick. No versus fast forward. RBG dies. What? Like, like what? Like, like two months before the election, six weeks before the election. And they were like, oh no, one of the duties of a president is that he gets to select the Supreme Court justice if there's an opening on his watch. Trump, absolutely, he can select someone. It shouldn't be a problem. Oh, you're mad? Yeah, I know what I said then. I'm changing my mind now. We're going to do this. They don't care about hypocrisy. They don't care about trash behavior. I mean, Mike Pence wouldn't even turn on Trump. Tried to have that man killed. Because he's a Republican, he wouldn't turn on him. Mitch McConnell, he got a little shaky, but he straightened that shit right up. Liz Cheney, she spoke up and was like, Trump is some trash. This is crazy. They censured her for speaking out, for not falling in line. Republicans all rallied together around each other. That's part of the reason that despite their small numbers, they stay so powerful. Democrats don't do that. And there are many folks who say Democrats should. And, and I, I see the point. I see that point too. But then I also say at what cost? What cost? Because, because if we behave no better than the Republicans, doesn't that just make us just like them? And if the bar is, well, Trump did it so everyone else can do it. Even specifically, if we just keep it to the sexual harassment, assault, rape, things of those natures. So because Trump did it and got away with it, Other people should be able to get away with it too. No consequences because Trump did it. Okay, but where does that leave the women who are harassed and assaulted and harmed? Y'all are playing this tit for tat game, but like, where does it leave the actual victims? Just fuck y'all, right? Is that right? I don't think so. So last but not least for this episode, we do have a treat. One of my friends is here with us today. Her name is Tamara Winfrey Harris, and she is here to talk about her second book, Dear Black Girl, Letters from Your Sisters on Stepping Into Your Power. For those of you who are not familiar with her work, Tamara is a writer who specializes in the ever-evolving space where current events, politics, and pop culture intersect with race and gender. She is well-versed on a range of topics, including Beyonce's feminism, Rachel Dozell's white privilege, and the black church and female sexuality. Her work has been published in many media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Cosmopolitan, New York Magazine, and the Los Angeles Times. 
You might also find her sharing her thoughts on NPR's Weekend Edition or Janet Mock, so popular on MSNBC. She's also a frequent face at university campuses nationwide, at least when the world is open. Her first book was The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America. And now, six years later, she's got a newbie that I'm very, very excited about. Please welcome Tamara Winfrey Harris to Ratchet and Respectable. I'm so happy for you. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, talk to me about this new book, because I know what I've read in the press release. I know the overall. I think I know some of the backstory. Like, but you tell me, how did this book come to be? So, it, so when you go, if you go way, way back, like the seeds for it started when I was touring on my first book, which is The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America. And I noticed this weird thing, like I was talking to these groups of Black women And when, you know, we started talking about all of the stereotypes that we deal with, right? You know, Black women were very, oh, no, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Whole Sapphire, Jezebel, you know, man, like, like they rejected those as it related to them. But when they started talking about younger women and girls, all of a sudden they started using language that kind of affirmed those things. Like, I remember exactly one woman was like, oh, these these young women are awfully free with their bodies. Um, And so, you know, I noticed like, what you know, what was that about? Um, And then, um, you know, dial forward a few years, I was doing a workshop with two of my friends. It was intergenerational Black women and Black girls. I thought it would be neat if the girls could walk away with a letter from a Black woman at the end of the workshop, went on social media, asked for 12 letters, got more than 50. Um, Black women really showed up for Black girls um, and mirrored, I think, the way that we want to relate to each other as Black femmes. Um, I read the first letter. It was amazing. And I knew that this had to be more than just that moment. And that's when the idea for the book was born. So this book is a collection of essays from Black women around the world who are writing open letters to Black girls, 13 to 21, about everything from sexuality to to what? To what else? What else is there? To, to hair, to skin color, to biracial identity, to trans identity, to sexual assault, to how do you get along with your friends, to how do you pick your work and passions, uh, how do you take care of your mental health, and a whole bunch of other advice. I love it. I love it. And when did you, you did a separate call out for the letters for this book, yes? Some of them were some of the original letters that I received, but then it was important to me that Black girls see themselves in all the ways they show up in the world in this book which meant I had to be purposeful about soliciting letters on certain topics. And are there any, what names can we expect to see letters from in this book? I do have amazing people like Disha Filia, um, Faith Adiele, who's also a terrific writer, Rochelle Riley, also amazing writer and columnist, Patrice Grell-Yursik, uh, Zafra Bella, Hannah Echo, 
um, Jamie Golden Nesbitt, like a, a amazing um, women, um, but you know, also not just writers, also some just everyday, everyday black women, because I wanted the advice to be accessible. And it wasn't about like, you know, who can write the most florid letter. It was about who can impart some real knowledge that black girls need. I love it. Do you have a letter in the book? I don't, but I write the analysis that leads each chapter. So I kind of sum up the theme. So in the the family, the chapter about family relationships, which is my favorite, I uh, I kind of write the analysis and sort of the opening message that I want girls to get from the letters that follow. What do you want people to get, or girls specifically, what do you want girls to get from these letters? I want girls to understand that they're okay and they're valuable and they're loved. I think one of the things that I say in like the epilogue to the book is that we love you even when you don't look or act or uh, behave um, in the ways that they say you should, no matter what zip code you live in, um, no matter what has happened to you. And I want Black girls to learn how to love themselves that way too, and also to love other Black femmes in the same way. Were you always this way where you had sort of like, because some people really like they get it early on that their self-worth, their confidence, like I am worthy, I am great, and they never have to go through that struggle to figure it out. Did you always know? And if not, when did you sort of figure it out? I mean, I think, I mean, my parents did a great job of like raising me to believe I could do whatever I wanted to do. But I also think there's a little bit of that that you just get as you grow older. You know, when you're younger, when you're a teenager, so much is attached to what are other people thinking? What do other people think that I should do? And if I, you know, if I were to write my own letter to Black girls, I would say as someone who is always a high achiever, um, that like my things, you know, that I struggled with is thinking, you know, that you have to achieve things all of the time for validation. Mm. Um, And that's not really healthy either. Um, um, So like my struggle wasn't necessarily for self-worth and confidence. It's to like, sit down sometimes, (laughs) you know, this is probably why we're friends. See, I knew I knew you were going to get it, right? Yeah, you were like, oh, let me give D one she knows well, because I know her well. Like, We've never discussed that before. <laughs> but yeah, that overachieving thing. And like, mm-hmm. I don't have high highs from from overachieving. Like if I hit the mark, it's like, well, you're supposed to hit the mark. So you hit it. Like, right. you don't celebrate that. But I have very low lows from not hitting it. And I mean, not hitting yes. it like I got a 98 instead of 100. It's like, where the extra two points at, you know? Exactly. Like you, you, you probably have to have people remind you to celebrate your successes. Somebody has to say, you have a whole two books. Do you realize that? But that's not like, well, that's not what I'm focused. Like I'm focused on something else. Yeah. It's like, I do one thing and then I'm like, you said you do one thing. Mm -hmm. And then before you can even celebrate it, I'm off to the next thing. Cause I'm like, I have to be doing something because that's where I tie up my self-worth. Yep. Like it's not in, it's not in men. It's not in kids. It's not in the traditional, um, I guess, ways that uh, stereotypically that women define themselves. Yep. I'm almost very much like a guy in that sense where it's about like, what do I achieve and how much do I earn? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Girl, I've been in therapy. I saw years. there was a, <laughs> look. I had a therapist one once ask me after I listed like this long dissertation on and I'm on this board and that board and I have this and I got this project and and this and sorority and she was like, "And what are you doing that for? Like to what end?" I had no answer. It's because I'm it's just what I do. I'm supposed to accumulate <laughs> accolades. And that, what else am I going to do right. with my life? Like, isn't that what we're here right. for? No, that's that's really not what we're here for. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Your therapist sounds about like mine. That means she's doing good work. <laughs> I mean, she's doing good work. But but you know, I wonder if that's maybe like the next place where we're going to see a lot of girls like struggling because, you know, in interviewing black girls for another project, I met like a lot of girls, especially the black girls in private schools and things like that, that had so much anxiety around not doing well. And I think now there's like on social media, sort of this gotta be hustling, (laughs) like ethos where everybody's a bad bitch and you got nine businesses You know, I think there may be a lot more girls and women who are going to struggle like us. I actually think like as much as I struggle with it, I think the bar might be even higher. I didn't ever think that I had to do everything by 25 while having like perky Mm. boobs, a flat stomach, a fat ass, dressing my ass off, 100,000 followers on Instagram with a blue check a full-time job, plus yes. a side hustle entrepreneur, like, and a boyfriend and a kid, or maybe a husband at 25. I mean, it's, but the bar is so unbelievably high. And it's just like, you can't reach it. Like you can curate the idea yes. of it on Instagram, but in real life, like the things that people keep saying, like you're supposed to have, I don't know that one person can have them, especially not all at the same time. Nope. I agree. You know, this book is from 13 to 21, but y'all, I might need to go read this book. Like, speak to my inner child. <laughs> speak to my inner child. Tell her that she ain't got to be, like, she can sit down somewhere and it's okay. That's important. I say that the book is for girls and former Black girls. And I've talked to a lot of women who have read it and uh, who have said, like, damn, I needed that letter. Um, because, aren't like, we, don't we all carry a little bit of like, I've got a little bit of, you know, 15 year old Tammy inside me. And I, you know, and I know you probably have, you know, 15, you like, you carry that stuff. You do. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You know, I thought this was like, I'm going to tell people, you know, like you should buy this book for your daughters. Maybe you should get a copy for you and a copy for babe. And y'all can read this as a mommy-daughter situation and work out your ish together. Get a copy for daddy, because he needs to understand, too. Look, you got a whole family. Exactly. Reading your book. Is there anything I didn't ask you about pertaining to the book? Because I just want to go buy a copy. Like, I mean, nothing personal. Like, I want to end this interview, and I want to go download my Amazon copy so I can get it, so I can be like, girl. So I was reading, and I worked out. Take this to the therapist. Be like, so this is what she said, and it triggered this thought. I thought we might want to discuss this. Um, what, what do you want people to know about this book that I haven't asked you about? I think the important thing for people to know is that, you know, I asked the women in this book to write to black girls through a lens of vulnerability and love, because sometimes, um, because we know black women and black girls don't get a lot of chances. They don't get second chances. Um, we don't get a lot of grace. 
um, you know, how people pick at us and who we are. So sometimes when Black women, older Black women caregivers talk to Black girls, they're so strict and they're so they approach them with like anger and fear because we don't, you know, we don't want them to mess up. Um, and that never like that, that never made anyone feel good as a teenage black girl. I don't even know if it works. And it's a lot, I think it's a lot more effective if you're talking to a young woman or a girl to say, you know, here's why I'm telling you to dump, <laughs> dump that boyfriend. Cause let me tell you what happened to me. Um, let me tell you why I'm scared for you. Let me tell you why I'm telling you that you need to sit down somewhere and take care of your mental health. And that's the way Black women have written in this book. Um, and I hope it will be revolutionary and will kind of model the ways we need to be talking to each other, whether we're caregivers or whether we're just friends. Well, that's the book <laughs> on your, uh, your book launch. I know it's hard, but you'll get through it. Girl, yes. I promise you. Thank you. All right, my love. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I love interviewing my friends sometimes because I find out things that I really didn't know. I mean, we're friends for a reason, but I didn't realize like, oh, the type A in me sees the type A in you. We value the same things. It might be dysfunctional, but it's the same. We're bonding at a level that I didn't even know we were bonding on. Thank you again, Tamara, for joining Ratchet and Respectable. And best of luck on your new book, Dear Black Girl, Letters from Your Sisters on Stepping Into Your Power. I also love the cover of this book. It's really beautiful art. I should have asked her who did the art. Like, I want to print it out and hang it on my wall. It's really pretty. Her book comes out March 9th, but it is available for pre-order nearly everywhere. So if you order it today, you should be able to get it by its drop date on Tuesday. So that is everything this week for Ratchet and Respectable. Don't forget to pick up your Don't Waste Your Pretty merch on the site. I did 200 books this week. I'll probably do another 200 next week. So if you'd like a signed copy of Don't Waste Your Pretty, the book that inspired the film, you can order those on my site. We will not be doing signed copies forever. I love y'all, but I got to work on the next book at some point. There's also mugs still available and hoodies, especially if you are a plush madame, not just plus, but plush. But if you are a plush madame, um, sizes large to 3X, we have a bunch of those left. So we have some of those left as well. So if you would like a hoodie while the weather is still chilly, get a hoodie while they're still in stock. What else is there? There's always something else I feel like I'm leaving out and I never remember what it is until I stop recording. Yikes. We'll talk about whatever's left next week. So in the meantime, have a great weekend and we'll talk again on Tuesday. Okay, bye.